Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rashes World. Today, we have a very interesting topic and two special guests that we'd like to talk to. And first off, I'd like to welcome Dr. Julie Bolak. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for, for asking. And I'm noticing my video is freezing a little. <laughs> yeah, we'll be fine. And also, Casey Berglund, um, how are you doing? I'm great. Yeah, I just spent some time outside laying on the ground and hanging out in the sunshine. So I'm feeling rejuvenated and refreshed, ready for the podcast. Ready for the podcast. Exactly. So what, one of the first questions I ask uh, all my guests here is, how would you briefly introduce yourself so we get an idea? You can see you can say anything you'd like at, at this point, uh, professionally, personally, whatever you want to share with us. How would you introduce yourself, uh, Julie? What would you say? Oh, that's a great question. I would say that I am a curious lover of nature and learning and all things movement. And I also happen to be a psychologist. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> they, they do tie in together, though. So that, definitely. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you. And what about you, Casey? As soon as you open it up like that, like introduce yourself however you want, personally yeah. or professionally. The first thing that came to my mind is I'm a country girl from a small town in Saskatchewan. And I've been in the city for now, I don't know, almost 20 years and wishing for, hoping for, yearning for a return to the country. So that's an interesting part of what's present for me. And I also own a company called Worthy and Well, which is a coaching and training company where we keep kind of mind-body practices and embodiment at the center. Okay. And that's a great segue into, into the book. Uh, the book is The Mind-Body Way, The Embodied Leader's Path to Resilience, Connection, and Purpose. There are a lot of words uh, that I already like in the title. So uh, let's briefly talk about what is the mind-body way, just to start off with. Uh, who would like to uh, try to give a brief explanation of that? The mind-body way is a way in which we see will help to uh, support leaders in bringing more, like the title suggests, connection, resilience, and purpose to their practices. So it's really about bringing the body back on board um, in decision-making, in how they connect with other people. It's remembering that we have this whole system that can provide us with data that we can use to help us become better leaders. So obviously the mind and the body are connected, though we sometimes forget about the body and, and act like we're heads on sticks. So <laughs> the mind-body way is really about bringing the body back into the leadership picture. Mm -hmm. And as a psychologist, what would you add to that, Julie? I think that's a beautiful summary. Uh, I think the thing I would add to it as a psychologist is we tend to operate really overusing the, the brain, the mind, mm -hmm. thinking, 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 everything comes back to the brain, but overusing that one sense experience rather than connecting to the whole body as a felt sense intelligence. And so you know, some people might refer to this as intuition or body intelligence. So this book is really a guide for helping us connect more to that really innate um, part of our intelligence and our sense of knowing that's a more felt sense. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And, you know, one of the things I want to add to that is we're so often distracted and disconnected and the one thing that's always present is the body. Yeah. And so when we can come back to the body 
there's a groundedness in that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it's, it's really like we think it's one or the other. And so you go to your physician and they treat the body. You go off into the psychologist and they treat the mind. But that, that kind of connection, the holistic view is something that I'm fascinated with because it is all interconnected. And somewhere we know that, but we still pretend that it's one or the other. And I think that black and white thinking is really not helping. And especially when it comes to leaders, because the issues are not black and white. So what are some suggestions you would give to leaders? What makes a good leader? Maybe as, a, as, a, as an opening question in, in your view. Oh, that's a beautiful question. I'm going to jump on that. Okay. The thing I keep coming back to, and others have said this too, even Gabor Mate, is to know yourself more. <laughs> if you want to be a better leader, if you want to be a better you know, mother, father, friend, lover, it's really about starting with yourself, getting to know and becoming more aware of, of you and responding with kindness. So the first pillar of our book is that it's awareness and compassion. <laughs> We're not able to show up as, as a leader in any area of our life in an effective way and in a kind way, which those two are together, they're not in they're not in in competition with one another. If we're not first aware and kind towards ourselves, and that doesn't mean letting yourself off the hook or not showing up and doing your best work, being kind and caring actually helps support you to to show up and be your best person. Yeah, the inner and the outer world and the self connecting there. And uh, we see with leaders, and I want Casey to jump into yeah. in a moment, but we see as leaders, it's like this uh, persona that we project onto others. Like, I am this strong, I am this leader who has all the answers. And a lot of people buy it and go for it, but that's not the real self. And then we have conflict there and comes off completely wrong or we can't help others and we don't convince others or don't persuade them with that. So uh, what would you add to, to this? Uh, is there anything that you would add to it, Casey, or what are your ideas here? And well, I love it because just before we start, you have different, slightly different perspectives too because of your background. So that makes your book so much more interesting. You have a third person as well, uh, Courtney Amo, who has also adds her own perspective. So we get a full mm -hmm. view of, of different facets. So what's what's your facet here, Casey? Uh, Thank you for acknowledging that piece. Like we're really proud of our collaboration and the different essences that we bring to the table. And, and I intentionally use the word essence because you know when you talk about leaders um I, I hear the word like pretending pretending to know it all pretending to have their shit together pretending to not be human to pr pretending to like be on a pedestal whether they like it or not um it takes a lot of energy to pretend or to mask up in that way and of course it's healthy to have boundaries and to know what safe spaces are for what conversations but the biggest thing that i think is key in in embodied leadership is this bringing your essence to the table bringing your authenticity to the table when building off of what Julie said, when, when someone gets to know themselves, they get to know what are the masks and what's the truth. And the body is, in my mind, a gateway to the truth. Um, 
challenging truths, beautiful truths, joyous truths, difficult truths. And I find that when I connect in with my body and I am brave enough to tap into what's there, no matter what truth I find, it's it's real and it has wisdom. And when I can integrate that wisdom, I become more whole and more authentic. So it directly translates to being more whole and authentic at work. And, you know, we talk a lot about the nervous system in our book too. Pillar two is about the mind, body, and nervous system and how authenticity and wholeness um, creates a safety, not just for oneself, but for the people that are around them, you know, so we can use authenticity and nervous system regulation to help support authenticity and nervous system regulation in others. And when we feel safe at work or in our lives, I think we do better work. We take more risks. We expand uh, more. So I'll add those little bits to that conversation. Yeah, I love that. And I want to uh, focus you on safety too. So uh, Julie, from uh, your perspective, again, uh, as a psychologist, what is it that makes us feel safe? And what are the benefits of having that that safe feeling? Because often we have also leaders who boss us around and they think that is the best way of doing it. And that's actually counterproductive. So what are your views on this? There are only benefits to creating safety. Yeah. And the, the research and practice are, are clear on, on that point. Um, safety requires the capacity to to be real to to show up um, with vulnerability and a lot of workplaces and leaders do not support that for lots of different reasons not just the individual but systems that are created that are not safe that that do not um, support people acknowledging differences in opinions or uh, acknowledge errors or mistakes or ask difficult questions. Um, we need to create cultures within communities and organizations where we can ask questions without fear of being, um, you know, negatively, you know, without fear of negative consequences, real support for just psychological safety. I know the, the you know the big Google workplace studies and others have have really highlighted the importance of psychological safety, and we can't we can't say that we're doing this within workplaces and then not actually do it because when there is something that's said but then the behavior doesn't match, our bodies listen to the behavior. So if I were to say, oh, don't, you know, you can just be yourself here, everything's great, but everything about my body language is like, I can't be trusted. There's a term for that in polyvagal theory, which is the theory of stress of the nervous system. And that is of neuroception. So it's a fancy term that's basically like spidey sense. Your body knows when you can't trust someone else or you can't trust it, a situation and so you will neurocept or perceive danger even if in your mind you're trying to convince yourself no you know this person is my boss why would they you know lie to me no no like if your body intuition your felt sense is saying you know <laughs> red alert red alert that's what you're going to um, at least initially believe what happens 
over time though is sometimes for lots of different reasons we stop trusting that and so this book is a is a guide to help guide people back to trusting that felt sense that wisdom that knows this is safe or this is not safe or this is truthful, you know, as, as Julie was speaking about that, especially when she was talking about uh, the incongruence of like behavior, not matching up with words and someone sensing that in their body. I just had a wave of chills that moved through my system. And, and I've come to know that the more I practice embodiment, that that's my signal for like truth or like, yes, I agree. That's an alignment, you know? And so um, being able to attune, personally to those experiences of trust or lack of trust or truth or lack of truth in one's body really is efficient too. And it helps with um, cutting through the BS, uh, for lack of a better word, to to get to what's what's real. And like, we need more of that in general, but in our workplaces as well. But it, it, it's so intuition is so important, and we we know this, and I, we can often feel like that that's by these sense of like this something is is a mess, or something is wrong, and so on. But it seems that we're also in conflict as as following the leaders when we we the the reasonable part or the rational part tries to control that, and then we're in conflict, and then we don't know what to do, and we get confused. So how can we strengthen that voice of intuition? Is there any any practices that can help us? To connect more with that <laughs> there are many practices this yeah. book is full of those practices so um you know in our book the mind body way we share six pillars of embodied leadership and at the end of each pillar uh there are various practices that build on one another that help one become more first attuned to their body and then also more trusting of their body so it, it sort of depends where a person is starting um like what practice is most aligned with where that person is at on their journey will, will depend. Um, but I think it honestly just starts with even taking a moment to attune to an inhale and an exhale or what your right pinky toe feels like. It's amazing. We're, we can generally be so disembodied that it's a big ask for someone to just like feel out their pinky toe or their pinky finger. But that actually is the gateway into sensing the body is sensing safe places in the body, sensing a part of the body that, you know, might feel relaxed and then building from there. Um, but the book really outlines specific practices connected to each pillar that someone could, you know, even trust their body's wisdom to know which practice they want to try first, that can be a good exercise as well. And not thinking of like doing it right in the right or wrong way. I think that's something with meditation too, or like mindfulness, which uh, which I, I'm quite uh, a fan of, if, of, of really like perceiving yourself and just perceiving those emotions and giving them space to to be there and all these different like feelings that we have. But But often we also give that away to a leader who has simple answers. And that's what we're looking for. Simple answer. This is the solution. And we follow that. But it takes away the whole part that is life and that is real life situations. It's much more complex than that. So in, in a way, they are deluding us and we are deluding ourselves by believing in them. 100%. Arash. Yeah, 100%. 
And so you talk about uh, different leader styles in the book too, the uh, explorer, connector, integrator. Can we briefly touch upon each of those and uh, what they are and what they tell and um, what you think of, of the different styles? I can start with the explorer. So um, actually these, these three styles we realized we realized by sharing these archetypes of embodied leaders, we could help our reader maybe see themselves in one of those archetypes or where they are on their transformational journey. So the first thing I'll share about the archetypes is that um, that archetypal journey is not linear. It's often cyclical and I can be experiencing the integrator in one context and the explorer in another, or as I evolve and grow and enter into new experiences, I'm back at experiencing the explorer. So for example, the explorer is someone who is curious about body-based practices, is curious about the data that they might receive from their body, but they don't necessarily have practices that they consistently attune to, to get connected with the body. They may have a sense of say intuition that shows up through the body, but not trust it. There's this curiosity though, it can be challenging to actually take the action based on the body wisdom. So that's kind of like the starting point. We felt that the folks who would pick up this book already have a little bit of an interest in this whole mind body concept, right? It's not totally brand new to them. Um, so they're not completely lost to the, the space of body wisdom, but they're maybe at the beginning stages where they're just starting to develop that relationship with their body and that trust of the body. And, you know, Julie, maybe I'll let you take the, the connector, the evolution from the, from the explorer. Thanks, Kay. So the connector, again, along this embodied uh, leader journey, that we might come in and out of would be someone who has a more regular practice of whether it be self-reflection, you might be a little bit more aware of your sensations in your body, what they mean. Um, you're paying attention to the signals of your body and even putting some trust in, in what your body is telling you. Um, where you you might want um, move more towards in terms of further further work or growth is you know further development of boundaries or how you might stay even more present in your body under more difficult um, situations. So that's really the connector. And the integrator has really. Uh develop some integrated practices of embodiment. So the integrator is someone who values and consistently has a daily practice of checking in with the body, um, acting in alignment with the body's wisdom, using the body's wisdom to support decision-making. Often the integrator is someone who, whose energy is, uh, trusting, magnetic. Uh, when you're around someone who's the integrator, you can just like naturally relax because the nervous system feels safe. Um, so those are a few little qualities of the integrator. And, you know, sometimes it can be hard to be in that integrator position in a leadership role, um, because it can sometimes feel like you're, you're the one that is the role model and having community 
with other integrators can be difficult to find. So um, there's sort of like pros and cons to being in each stage of the journey. And then, you know, circling back to what I shared at the beginning, depending on context, we might experience these archetypes differently. Like, for example, when I'm doing something brand new in my working world, I don't know, I'm thinking about when I was preparing to do my TEDx talk, that was the the first time that I stood on a stage in front of 1500 people or that it would be online. And it was almost like, and my talk was about embodiment, but it was almost like because of the change in context and the rules from Ted, basically my body's wisdom was counter to the practices that Ted required um, to make that talk happen. And so I was almost back at the explorer stage in trusting my body because I was in a whole, I was at sort of like at a different level. So I think that upward spiral is a good sort of um, visual for how the embodied leader journey goes. And I think it's really important to know that one archetype is not better or worse than the other. It's just part of part of the path. Yeah, I mean, archetypes are are many people don't don't value them enough, but they're they're hugely important. And I think again, the importance of the the unconscious and the subconscious that is that is driving us. And uh, um, I see also some, one of the issues is also the employers because they're often the ones who choose the people who will, should be the leaders of the company, and often they're led by by hearsay. They're led by the impression. They often choose narcissists or nar people with narcissistic tendencies, who are, uh, in my view, some of the worst types of leaders you can have because they cannot connect with others, and they're always on the defensive because they're constantly trying to hide that they are pretending to be someone they're not. So. That's not helping the company. That's not helping the, the people who are working in that company. And, and it's not beneficial for anyone. So how can we change that kind of mindset, too, of not falling for, for uh, people who, who say they're very good when they're not in reality? I think it comes back to trusting your, that, that neuro section of, is this someone I want to work with or for or not? And where you do have choice. And I realize we don't always have you know, complete choice over our circumstance, but where there is um, choice to choose um, collaborative safety over um, working for a narcissist. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I, I listened to a podcast the other day and this line is going to stay probably in my mind forever. And that is you don't change the weather in Chicago. So if you're dealing with a narcissist, don't try to change them, like dodge, avoid, like, cause yeah, this is, you know, and I'm talking about like a clinical profound narcissism, not, you know, mild entitlement, which is all over society right now. Um, but we're not going to change the weather in Chicago. Yeah. There's also this move towards flattening the, the uh, environment of, of, of work and uh, the, getting rid of the hierarchy, but it's often they say it, but I don't see much action. It's like just paying, playing, paying lip service to it. And, and really like, oh, I am your boss and you have to do what I say. But once you get a leader who's like really down to earth, it's like, I am with you and we're on the same wavelength. That's when you have the trust and safety and that's really helping, helping the company. Uh, phenomenally, you know, if we just think about even creativity, you know, what helps foster creativity? It is, you know, space and um, the 
um, encouragement of diversity of ideas and dialogue and doing things differently and, and permission to not have like a rigid schedule, like all these different things really support creativity and collaboration, right? You know, being able to dialogue and brainstorm with others. Um, you know, for instance, our book would not have been possible as it is without the beautiful collaboration of the three of us. And it is possible to do this virtually. There are added challenges, for sure, and we, we many times tried to connect in person, all three of us, over the past three years of, of co-writing, and we have yet to be in the same room together, the three of us, because of the different, you know, closures and lockdowns, et cetera, and, and challenges, um, but we're, we're on it for the summer, I think. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what, how important is courage and empathy? I know they're really important, but how important are they? How does that fit in into our discussion, Casey? Maybe you can talk mm -hmm. a bit about that. Yeah. Well, and again, to reiterate the importance of safety, like safety creates a container that can, I think, help people become more courageous and to take risks. So one of the pillars in our book is, is around taking risks and practicing courage. And what we really speak to in that pillar is that it takes courage to even go into embodiment in the first place. You know, for some folks, being with their inner experience for even a few seconds can be really challenging because they're tapping into the unknown. You know, there's there's what you find in your body is sometimes unknown. There could be challenging emotions stored there. There could be tra traumatic memories or experiences that could bubble up through this embodiment practice. So, um, it's important to just validate that there's a level of courage required to even engage with these practices in the first place. And then embodiment can also help to support more courageous acts. So when, when there's an awareness of the body and the data that comes from the body and a trust of the body, there could be more self-trust in general. So for me, for example, when I know I have my own back, I can lean into um, speaking up in a meeting where I have a view that's counter to the views of everyone else. And I can trust that at the end of the day, I'm going to love myself because I know how to have my own back and how to hold myself when I'm feeling something that's challenging. So it takes courage to drop into the body. And once you drop into the body and practice embodiment, bring embodiment into your leadership, it actually can make you more courageous and help you to take more risks, especially in the context of a generally safe container, you know? Um, so even... Tough choice. I mean, both of them. I mean, you, you want to feel like conform because then you get the safety of the group. But then you yes. don't feel good about yourself because you say, I shouldn't have done this. So I should have done that instead. So th this conflict always exists and trying to balance that. I think that is that is really hard. But also, what if we lived in a world where we really fan the flames of each other's individuality mm -hmm. in community? What if what made us different and what took courage to express was actually not the thing that got us kicked out of the tribe, but made us belong? And so it made us stronger, I, just about stronger. That. It made us stronger. Yeah. Yes. And, and to sort of like circle back what we were talking about earlier when you were speaking about like narcissists and leadership, it's like just because that might be normal, just because a top down approach to leadership is common. 
um, doesn't necessarily mean it's most efficient. And, you know, we wrote this book because we want to change the paradigm. We want to create a paradigm where collaboration and rest and following and trusting intuition and taking risks and being different and still belonging is more the norm. And we feel that that's what embodiment um, offers us. So it, it kind of like, there's like an answer on the surface. And then there's this, always this deeper piece of like, what would it mean to shift the paradigm or change the system? And that's sort of like the bigger, maybe more challenging work. Yeah, it takes more work. I think that's exactly it. That's not the easy way. Because like empathy is you consider the other, other person's feelings and so on, why they behave and they're taking risks and make mistakes and that's perfectly fine. But we of, often have punitive measures. It's like, okay, you didn't do what I expected you to do, which is apparently the best way, according to that uh, the narrow-minded leader. And so that's not helping anyone. And so to, to really, it takes more effort. And when you say the word resilience, that's hard work. I mean, resilience doesn't come on its own. It doesn't happen overnight. It is a lot of work. And I think a lot of us are shunning that because we want the easy way out. We want the quick solution, the quick fix, and so on. Yeah, the, the quick fix is in the moment today, it's easier to keep doing things as we're doing them, to not change. In the medium and longer term, though, not making a shift is actually more difficult. Uh, for, I think for a lot of people, and certainly a lot of clients I work with, um, I find that the thought of becoming more embodied, you know, they don't even know where to start. Like, what would that even look like? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I love an example that, that Casey's given before of like, what kind of ice cream do you want? Do you want chocolate or, or strawberry? And it doesn't necessarily be ice cream, and I wouldn't even advocate ice cream. And you know, do I want broccoli or asparagus with my dinner? You know, <laughs> we can start to check in with ourselves before continuing on autopilot, and just ask, like, mm, what am I? What am I called for right now? Or what? What would I like right now? What would be nourishing right now? And just slowing down. Um, those decision points across the day so that we're actually tuning in to what we might need moment to moment. And the idea with embodiment and with our book isn't to always, it's like with mindfulness, the, the, the ideal is not to always be mindful, to never be mindless. If we, you know, thought through every decision like that in a completely mindful way, we probably wouldn't get very much done. The idea or the ideal is to be discerning, to know, okay, in this situation, it's going to be more helpful for me to disconnect a little bit and to go into more autopilot. And in this other situation, it's actually more useful for me to take a breath, you know, find the courage to show a little bit more vulnerability and take a risk here. It's that discernment, no one right or wrong. It's not about black and white, all good or all bad. It's choosing. And when we take on that choice, there's a sense of empowerment in that too. Like I am choosing right here. I'm going to put my mask back on a little bit. You know, this isn't a safe situation. I know my, you know, whatever is narcissistic or micromanaging me or whatever. And, and in this situation, until I change the context somehow to be more safe, I'm going to show up in this one way. 
I think that's important that you mention it because being authentic, yes, you can be authentic in your, in your family, in your home, and, so, and you should be. I mean, that's a, that's the ideal. But then when you go outside, it's like, yeah, there is a bit of a mask and it's kind of like necessary for you to survive because if you're going to be completely honest with at work, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. So we do have to discern that. I like that. that point. Well, and even this idea of authenticity, oh, there's so many layers to authenticity. That's for right. one, what is authentic one day for you is not going to be what's authentic another day, right? Because we're always changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you like a different uh, flavor of ice cream the next day, yeah, you know? and that's yeah. that's perfectly fine. That's that's normal. Yeah, exactly. But we, we talked about resilience, I think, and also that's important that uh, success, it doesn't come overnight. There's lots of like missteps that we don't see. People don't talk about it. It's like, oh, I, I, I failed again today, right? And it's fine. I mean, that's again, we don't want to give the wrong impression, but it comes with a lot of work and ups and downs, as you're saying. I like how you explore the explorer, that it's kind of a cycle and then you, you have the ups and downs. And so that's resilience, you get each down, makes you stronger and you have more chances for success. We talked about con connection. And uh, I think that's again, hugely important empathy, trusting your intuition, connecting with others. What about purpose though? What would you say about purpose? Maybe Casey, what would you say about purpose? What, what would yeah. you suggest there? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing that I find over and over again is that the mechanism that helps me decide if I want chocolate or strawberry ice cream or broccoli or asp asparagus mm -hmm. is actually the same mechanism that can guide me to really meaningful work. Mm -hmm. Like, I just got the truth tingles. Like, really take that in. It's the same mechanism, just more at stake. If I can trust myself in choosing broccoli, because that's what's going to satisfy me, be nourishing, be nourishing for me, go with whatever else I'm having for dinner. And my body's like on board with that decision. And I keep making decisions just like that, even when they get bigger, like, do I stay with this partner or break up with them? Do I hire this person or the other person? Is it time to move to the country or stay in the city? It's like those choices when the body is on board, are for alignment. And so over time, embodiment builds on itself. And my experience is that the more I trust my body, the more aligned I become. And so purpose is sometimes a word that scares people away. It can feel like a destination to get to a success point to like work your whole life for. And so feel free to change that word out for whatever, for alignment, for meaning. Um, the the piece that's important here is that once you go down the path of embodiment, there's no turning back. And for better or worse, <laughs> alignment will happen. And I say for better or worse, because like sometimes it sucks. Sometimes yeah. the body wisdom to be in integrity with body wisdom and in alignment with my values, I'll use myself as an example. I need to do really challenging things, have a really challenging conversation, uh, grieve a relationship that I wish I could just keep. But for me, that integrity is really important. And for me, integrity with what I do, how I use my time, how I share my gifts, how I'm of service to the world. As a leader, that is like one of the most important things for me. And think about the crisis of a lack of fulfillment that so many people are experiencing. 
this is like a gateway back home to more fulfillment, more truth, more integrity. For me, it's coming back to more love. So that's a guidepost for me. And my body is always guiding me towards that alignment. That alignment is, I, I really like that word. So a goal is probably my least favorite word because it seems very fixed. And it's like, I think it's, it's more fluid than that. Purpose I like because it adds the meaning to it. I see like there's an underground uh, meaning uh, that drives us. But I think alignment is, is really like, uh, that works for me, right? What would you say, uh, Julie, about this? Yeah, uh, well, what, you know when you're living in alignment, right? I ask this question to clients all the time, like how, like if you think about the bullseye, mm -hmm. how close to the bullseye are you living in terms of like, if you think about different areas of your life, love, work, and play, like how much in alignment are you living in these different areas? And people will say very easily, oh, like, I, you know, in a zero to 10, I'm a, like a three, I'm very far from the bullseye, you know, related to love. But, you know, work, you know, I'm a little bit more connected, so maybe a six. So what, what would help you shift towards living in more in alignment? And again, it's coming back to the body, using the cues to go, okay, um, I, I'm working really long hours. I, I, I love my work but I'm neglecting my family. So that doesn't feel in alignment with uh, my, my purpose or my calling or what, how I want to be as a father, mother, you know, partner, et cetera. And that's gonna mean I need to make a shift and work a little less and spend more time with my family. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like really working the spiritual muscles. And I like like from like the small stake to the bigger stake. And it really starts like what am what am I going to have for breakfast? What do I want? And yeah. just once you know that, then you are working your choice and decision making and you have an issue, you have a problem. And it's like, how am I personally mm -hmm. gonna deal with it? Not how would my boss do it, not how would my parent would have my parents done it or something like that, but how would I not even Jesus, right? We just want to focus, how would I personally deal with the situation? And that's exhilarating because you say, well, this is my choice. And it might be wrong, and that's fine, right? Because that's, again, mistakes are my own mistakes. They're not somebody else's. I can't blame anybody else. It's really me and taking accountability for that. But that is, again, resilience. That's growth. And I think that that mind frame would, would help us a lot. And we learn through that. Mm -hmm. Like so often... Um, that feeling of stuckness that I see with so many. There's a lack of momentum, a lack of movement in that. And, and people are often frozen from taking the next step. Sometimes we need to just take any next <laughs> step in order to go, ooh, that wasn't the direction I needed. <laughs> like rejig, okay. Yeah. You need to take a different step. But it's, it's bringing back like a sense of agency, like, yes. It's my responsibility to take this next step. And there are really concrete actions I can take. And I, you know, everyone I encourage, and I do this in my own life too, think of like micro changes you can make in your life. Like if you're having, you know, box cereal and milk for breakfast, which, and I wouldn't recommend anyone if you wanna be embodied, you know, what would it be like to shift to, you know, a, a different breakfast um and what if it's not you know the whole breakfast what one thing might you add 
know, and so try it out. Just experience <laughs> it. Try it out. Yeah. And Perfect. see what happens. Yeah. And listen to your body again. How does your body react to that? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Um, I just like to finish up with one question and I, I, I do know the answer to it, but I just want to kind of clarify it for, for our audience too. What was the motivation behind this book? Why did you write this book? Because it took a lot of effort and you're combining all your forces together. So what is your purpose with this book? What do you try to achieve? Or what's your aim? Mm-hmm. I'm going to answer this from a really personal place, like Wonderful. not from the collective of Julie, Courtney and I. Mm-hmm. Um, what I continually come back to is what does it mean to act out of a space of unconditional love? And for me, uh, my very first profound embodied experience, I would even call it like a spiritual awakening type of experience, was uh, awakening through sensation in my body to this feeling of like my purpose is love. And no matter what I do, it's an expression of love. And so for me personally, this book is an extension of that, especially in a culture context through the past few years where what I witness is a lot of division and separation and fighting and arguing and ego battles. And to me, that is not the outcome of love. So to me, bringing unconditional love into a space through a book, work with every single one of my clients, that's what drives me. It's about creating more connection, more unity, more togetherness and elevated state of consciousness, which to me is unconditional love. So that's my why for, for spending three years writing this baby. (laughs) And, and I also got to tap into that energy of unconditional love through being in collaboration with Julie and Courtney. I got to deepen that experience for myself. Like the process of writing was healing and loving in and of itself. So that kept me going. Mm-hmm. Wonderful, yeah. What about you, Julie? What would you say? Oh, we'd be here a long time if I <laughs> gave all the reasons that that led to writing this book. But in brief, I was on a long, silent meditation retreat over Christmas and New Year's for eleven days, twenty nineteen to twenty twenty, and uh, the word embodiment came to me, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and then this beautiful collaboration happened, and everything it's been a little bit like serendipity, like things just led to this. And I've done a lot of work in my practice as a psychologist around burnout. Mm -hmm. And I have identified disembodiment as a big contributor to that. And so really wanting to support clients and in all the, the, the strategies and areas of growth. I work with people on individually and in groups and organization like wellness sessions, just supporting them with a book. Not everyone has access to going to see a psychologist or has that sort of um, time or interest. But if someone can pick up a book and do a couple of the strategies, even if they just take away one or two tips from, from this book, like, oh yeah, I could ask myself, do I want strawberry or chocolate ice cream? Like, that's a win. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful too. And the, the book is always there. I mean, the the, the uh, counselor or psychologist isn't always there, but the book you can carry around with you at all times. So I, I love that. And again, just to remind everyone, your book is the Mind Body Way: The Embodied Leader's Path to Resilience, Connection, and Purpose. Uh, I'm talking to Dr. Julie Bolak and Casey Berglund. Thank you so much for being on Rash's World, and a shout out to Courtney Amo as well, who contributed to the book as well. Thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Lovely conversation. Thanks.